tell you that. He said, oh, honey, you, you can tell me. You're, you're not bound by the sea. You, you can tell me. I'm not telling you, Ray. All right, I figured it out. You want to know what your friend, girlfriend, or if you're married, spouse, tell the priest. You can't ask them direct. They can duck you. You got to go kind of around. So, um, <clears throat> honey, what, what did Father give you for penance? <laughs> now, if you know what they got for penance, you can kind of reason backward to how Rock got to work. <laughs> she said, I guess I can tell you that. I got a rosary. Not a rosary. That's not bad for 40 years of pagan mock. <laughs> she said, for the stations of the cross at every beat. Oh. <laughs> I wish you'd have told me that before I married you. <laughs> and then she asked me, she says, okay, Ray, what do you usually get for penance? Me? Most of the time? Half a sign of the call. is true, and that is why I am here. Because it's quieter here, and it smells better. <laughs> People find out I have ten kids, I always get this. Okay, Mr. Psycho Man. <laughs> now that you've got your own kids, what have you learned? <laughs> I've learned something very critical. I don't take them out in public. <laughs> you got nine, I can tell by your twitch. You know, you guys embarrass us out in public the first nine or ten years of life. After that, we embarrass you. <laughs> oh, come on, Mom, don't. Don't, don't wear pants with the feathers, Mom. Don't wave at me when people are looking right at us. And Dad, I'm not going to pull your finger. <laughs> My children are 23, 22, 20, 20, 20, 18, 15, 14, 13, and 11. All of my kids, all 10 of them, our blessings through adoption. I figured out one of the great benefits of adoption. The agencies don't tell you this. I think it's tremendous. I tell this to every person who wants to adopt. You adopt in December. You still get the tax deduction for the whole year. But if you cut back on the food, you can break even September October. My wife and I. You will appreciate this, young lady. Have we had an ongoing conflict here for years, and it has gotten worse as we got more children. Personally, I think you folks will agree with me. Well, first of all, my wife does not work for a living. I don't know what she does. <laughs> you quote me, I'll deny I was even here. I've seen what the woman does. I want no part of what the woman does. When the kids were little, we had 10 kids, 12 and under. She'd take them to a grocery store. They had to see them strung out behind her like ducks. <laughs> Hands at their sides, and all that touch anything. And they would not deviate six inches either way out of a straight line the whole two hours they were in there. <laughs> no, they wouldn't. 
like I'm pushing. <laughs> I got three white kids, two Hispanic kids, two biracial kids, three black kids. People would look at my wife. <laughs> Just left. Drifted out. 
Isaac was God's God. Jesus is Jesus. What's a God? What's a man? Let's see the spirit of the whole thing. <laughs> you know, I'm spiritual and not religious. <laughs> what a nonsense utterance. Is that one of the most no I'm telling that to my wife. You know, I'm married to you in spirit, not, not in obligation. <laughs> Just know I love you, that's all. I don't go home tomorrow night. Just know I love you. <laughs> I was a new atheist. The old atheist, you gotta have a little bit of perverted respect for. The old atheist made sense. Their premise was there's no God. So even though the premise is in error, the logic follows. <laughs> Therefore, you can do what you want. The new atheists are frightened. The new atheists are everywhere. They are in our pews. The new atheists are, there is a God, but he thinks just like me. <laughs> Much more dangerous atheism. So I drifted out. Now before I go any further tonight, I want to make clear, I am not impugning the many fine, fine folks that are Christians of other traditions who are following Christ as they have been taught and as their heart is leading them. They are our Christian brothers and sisters. You know this. I'm going to be talking about the system. I'm speaking of the system they are operating in. Let's make it simple. Catholic, Protestant. Got two systems there, two big systems. Which one is most correct. How do you know? When I was in the evangelical world for 10 years, hey, come on, hey, Father, they had guys in there with more letters after their name. They could have spelled another name. They knew every ancient Semitic language, and they could translate the Bible up one side, down the other. And I'm going to sit there and argue with these guys about their interpretation of Scripture and church history. How do you know? You go up against somebody really bright like that, they'll tear you up. So what do you do? Do you just sit there and go, well, well, I'm Catholic, and, and we say Hail Mary's because, well, because she's nice. She's a really nice person. And we like her. <laughs> right. How do you know? There is, a, there is a relatively simple way to know which system is correct. Which one is consistent within itself? Which one does not contradict itself? You are a very sophisticated group. You know more about your faith than the vast majority of adults out there. So some of the stuff I'm going to tell you, you may have heard in some form. You know as well as I do that in the Protestant world, the main tenet is this. All you need is the Bible. The Holy Spirit will guide you in understanding Scripture correctly, and you will know how to live the Christian life in faith and more. Now, that's a nice hypothesis. How does it work in real life? You know as well as I do, you've heard the stats. 30 to 35,000 independent denominations and churches in the Protestant world, according to the Oxford Dictionary of Christian Denominations. 30 to 35,000. Now, is the Holy Spirit a multiple personality? Is the Holy 
Spirit unable to guide this rather chaotic flock towards a common point. It seems to be that this is what's happening. When you try to defend a system that is indefensible, you sound dumb. At one point in the Protestant world, I was in four Bible studies, taught a couple of them, and I had a prison ministry. And the deeper I got into my Protestant understanding, the more the trouble started. For example, if in fact the Bible is the sole source of understanding, and if indeed a good Christian has the Holy Spirit to guide him, what's going on out there? Why are we disagreeing? So when I would ask this of very bright Protestants, here was the answer I got. And remember, you try to defend a system that's not defensible, you sound even dumber. We agree on the basics. All of these divisions are on ancillary things that are not core to the Christian faith. Some of you are philosophy majors. I can tell which ones of you it is. You have this look on your face like, do I exist? <laughs> I'm either the philosophy just enough to mess me up for the rest of my life. always got, if a tree falls in the woods and there's nobody there to hear it, does it make a sound? You sat there at night <laughs> Well, there is a modern gender counterpart to that. If a man is in the woods, all alone, and there are no women there to hear him speak, if he speaks, is he still wrong? <laughs> Now correct me if I don't remember my philosophy, but you learned about tautologies. You know what tautology, A equals A. If it's raining, it's raining. A gas a gas. It doesn't really tell you anything. We agree on the basics is a tautology. It's circular. What do you agree upon? The basics. Why do you agree upon it? Because they're the basics. How do you know they're the basics? Because we agree upon it. <laughs> I was in a Bible study once, and I turned to the pastor's wife, who said this to me. And this was when I was starting to look at Protestantism with a, a gimlet eye. Just kind of going like this. I'm starting to have some trouble with this. I said, Protestantism agrees on the basics. Yes. Is a baby in a womb a baby? Absolutely. Would it be murder to throw out baby? Of course. Um, there's a lot of Protestantism that doesn't agree with you on that. Does that make that not a basic? Does that make life not a basic? Where I was, once saved, always saved. And that was a great gig. I mean, that is a good selling point. You've got to think about this a little bit. And that is, if you commit your life to Jesus Christ, you ask him into your heart, if your Lord and Savior, you're in, buddy. You are in, and you can't lose that salvation. 
That's why the Pope got in all kinds of trouble back. John Paul II. Because somebody asked him, are you saved? And he said, I hope I am saved. And then much of the Protestant world was going nuts. Like, oh, geez, the guy doesn't even understand the basics of Christianity. He was a Christian. He'd know he was saved. He'd make the call for God. Once saved, always saved. Now, Father Pink, maybe I can help you out. <laughs> we Catholics don't have good sound bites. In the Protestant world, they got good sound bites. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. The scripture interprets scripture. We got a major on the major and minor on the minors. We got to agree to disagree. You ask a Catholic, why do you think Peter was the first pope? Well, because, you know, um, our Lord, uh, he took the setting there, you know, the Caesarea Philippi, and, and with, with the big rock there, the monolithic rock there with niches, in the, and where they, had the, where they had the gods in the niches, and our Lord was trying to draw context for these. He was basically saying Simon Bar Jonah, he was playing on the words, you know, and hey, you you got to have a sound bite. Pete's got the seat. <laughs> his way, he, his wife, and his three children move next door to this rather darling 27-year-old that he gets to know on a personal level, and then pretty soon it goes beyond that, and he leaves his wife and his three children. He is asked to leave the church, and he pretty much leaves Christianity. So here's the question. Is he still saved? Now, the answer I got to that, now remember what I said, you try to defend something that's indefensible, you sound even dumber. The answer I got to that, and not only just from people I asked, but I heard it on pretty much most of the Protestant preachers I listened to on the radio. He must not have been saved to begin with, because he couldn't do that if he were truly saved. Now, wait a minute. For 30 plus years, this guy was told, you're saved. He had the assurance of salvation that he could never lose his soul. And then, when he does something egregious, he's told, you were mistaken. You really weren't saved. Then you can't have the assurance of salvation. It's beginning to smell a little Catholic, isn't it? That you're saved by persevering to the end. Here's another one. Where I was, we were told, and this is pretty much the dominant notion among the fastest growing Protestant independent churches. Catholics have the wrong Bible. 
Catholic Old Testament has books in it that shouldn't be there. Now back in the late 300s, of course, you know that the church had to wrestle with, what is our Bible? How do we know there's books floating around that some areas read from a scripture and others look at and they're apocryphal? And we've really got to decide. So they asked the Holy Spirit, help us lay out the Bible, the traditional understanding of what is our scripture. And they came up with the idea that there are, in the Old Testament, 43 books. I'm sorry, 46. 46 books in the Old Testament, 46 plus. In the New Testament, 27. Now, when I said to my Protestant friends, um, well, at the time, that's the Catholic Church that did that. Here was the answer. Well, that doesn't matter. It's the Holy Spirit that did it. And, and God, God can work through that pole. All right, God, God doesn't need a, a bunch of guys with collars on to pick out what the Bible is. He can use anything. Okay, he can use Pharaoh, okay? Here's the problem. And this is a huge logic problem. Okay. So, when the Holy Spirit used that apostate Catholic church to put the Bible together, the Holy Spirit said, there are 27 books in the New Testament. Non-Catholics say, that's right, that's right. 27 books. We agree with that same 27 you got. You're wrong on the Old Testament, though. The Old Testament, you Catholics got too many books in there. Are you saying that the Holy Spirit, when he guided whomever he guided, to put the Bible together, kind of got it part right? Are, are you saying that you're willing to acknowledge that the Holy Spirit correctly picked out the books of the New Testament that you also used, but in the Old Testament, he missed it. And it wasn't until 1,100 years later with Martin Luther, who came and said, those things don't belong there, get them out, that the Holy Spirit corrected himself? I just, I didn't even argue with him. I just said, I just want to know if that's what you're telling me. Is that what you're saying? My head was spinning, guys. I remember one time I was sitting in a Bible study, and there was a lady in there who said, you just got to go by Scripture. That's it. The Catholic Church has added all kinds of junk. You just got to go by Scripture. The Catholic Church is not scriptural. I said, well, what if St. Peter were here? Now, where I was, I got chastised for calling St. Peter. So I would say, okay, what if Mr. Peter were here? <laughs> One of the answers I always got was, we are all saints. And I remember thinking, well, this is really cool. I get to be St. Raymond, but the apostles don't get to be saints. This is pretty neat. Talk about a feeling, feeling to my ego. I said, okay, Mr. Peter's here. Could we ask him, what did Jesus teach? Did he, did he say to baptize babies? Did he really need himself in this miraculous, mysterious way? Is, is the bishop of Rome the head of the church? Do, do, you, do you pray that departed brothers and sisters in Christ? I mean, could he tell us? And she said, I suppose he could. I said, would you believe him? She said, that depends. 
I said, it depends upon what? She said, if he's being true to scripture or not. <laughs> now, to us, that sounds ridiculous. But in her logic scheme, that makes perfect sense. If you're guided by the Holy Spirit to understand Scripture, then even if Peter himself comes and says, our Lord didn't teach us that. She has the right, the self-proclaimed right, to say, he's misunderstanding those Scriptures that I could teach. He really is. By the way, you guys are too young to remember this. But back when Bill Clinton was president, and he got in a little bit of trouble. <laughs> there was an uproar in, in much of the religious world because Bill Clinton was asked a question and he said something to the effect of, well, it, it, kind, of, it kind of depends how you define is. You know, what, what meaning are you giving to is? Okay, and the religious people were more, more incensed than anybody else because their attitude was, look at this, this guy's arguing over a verb. <laughs> well, I find it fascinating that when our Lord said, this is my body, which is the most likely translation of the underlying Greek verb there, most of my Protestant Christian friends said, he doesn't mean this. It depends what you mean by is. <laughs> it's just an ultimate spiritual irony. I was messed up, guys. I was so messed up that I was considering leaving Christianity. Because my attitude was, you can't know? Get out. This is all a nice little thing you guys are into. And if it makes you feel good, that's good. But you can't know. It's all over the map. Do we baptize babies? Don't we baptize babies? Do we pray saints? Don't we pray saints? Should I, should I contracept? Should I not contracept? What if I divorce my wife? You know, I don't really like her. She's kind of getting older. She's a lot older than she was when I first married her, you know. I just don't want to marry her anymore. It's a, it's a free-for-all. I remember in the kitchen, verge of tears. Now, there's only been two other times I've been on the verge of tears in my life. The one is when I had to lecture my daughter, Sarah, who is in college, and she's 20. And I had, because Sarah wasn't taking this serious, so what I did is I pulled a nose hair. <laughs> you pull a nose hair, it's very good. It makes your eyes water. It conveys credibility, you know? A little, a little emotional, not, not blubbering, but just kind of a, you know, more of that little rip of tears here. That was one time I cried. <laughs> and the other time I cried was when John Elway, in 1987, for the Denver Broncos, with one minute left, drove the Broncos all the way down the field and knocked the Browns out of the Super Bowl. <laughs> so how do you know? You can't go to Scripture, obviously, because people of good intentions disagree wildly. How do you know? There is a way to know. And I don't want to dwell on this too long because I want to get to my main point. I have some points. People read a couple of my books and say, you know, this guy seems to contradict himself. The passage he wrote over here doesn't seem to dovetail with the one he wrote over here. This, this, I don't get it. I don't get it. How would you figure out what I meant? What's the best way to know what I meant? Ask me, right? Okay, I'm dead now. <laughs> Ask my wife. She'll tell you what I mean, whether I mean it or not. <laughs> 
You ask people who hurt me. You hurt him? Can you help me interpret these two passages here? You know as well as I do. In a group like this, you're a very sophisticated group. We have thousands of pages of early writings. We got all kinds of early writings. And, and they're recognized as legitimate early writings. How they understood the Christian faith in those days. So I went back and just started reading like crazy. I wanted to see what the church actually thought like in the first three, four centuries. Oh my gosh. They baptized babies. They confessed the priest. There was a very special headship of the Bishop of Rome. They had the Mass. They prayed for the departed. All of the things that I was told was all Catholic junk that you added on to the pure, simple gospel message was there. That shook me up. But there was something else. I used to do evaluations at state institutions. Crazy people, okay? Now, the interesting thing about somebody who isn't working well up here, they can hold it together. That's part of the problem when you interview them for an hour. They can come across pretty good. You've got to see them in a range of settings. Some of you have grandparents who are organically slipping a little bit. And you know that there's arguments within the family. Because one family member said, that's mom. Grandma's always been like that. She's just always been that way. And you have another family member going, no, 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 no. She, something's going on. Something's just, just not quite there. Now, if you went to any other college besides this one, any other secular college, the number one interpretation of who Christ was would be, well, he was a, he was a good moral teacher. You know, kind of like, kind of like a skinny Buddha. You know, maybe a fat guy. <laughs> good moral teacher. Well, I'm a shrink. When somebody came into my office and I had to interview him for whether they were psychotic or not, if we talked for an hour and things sounded pretty good, and then at the end I'd ask, you got anything else you want to tell me? Yeah. What is it? Did you know I'm blind? <laughs> oh, just a shade too long. You were in the clear up to that point. <laughs> well, you see, the ludicrousness, as C.S. Lewis says, to call Jesus a good moral teacher. That, 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 that makes no sense. Because everything we know about Christ, he was either a nutcase, he was a pathological liar, or he was who he said he was. Well, extrapolate that to the Eucharist. Okay? Where I was, they said this. How can you possibly look at that white wafer and think that's the God of the universe? I mean, what is it? That was like a notch above a crocodile head, okay? You guys go in here in the middle of the night, you spend an hour in adoration. What are you doing? You're sitting in front of some white thing sitting there. Come on. Don't you have senses? Can't you see? Don't you have eyes? Father, what is this? Quarter. That's a very good answer, Father. It's probably the last one you're going to get right. Father, could you do me a favor? Could you, um, could you bend that quarter and a half for me? You can't do that? Why not, Father? It's only a 30 second of an inch thick. Come on. 
people cooking can you do it if you were strong? Did you see Rick White? Yeah, I said, well, I saw him too, the, the one with the tattoo. Why can't Father, and there's nobody in here that could, bend this quarter in half? Why not? It's only 30 seconds of an inch thick. Why can't, why can't you bend it in half? Yeah. That's solid metal, right? It doesn't have to be alloys. You know? <laughs> you don't get an answer like that anywhere. Because of the alloy uh, structure, right? <laughs> It's got a face of some guy on it. This is what happens to an educated person who raises their children. <laughs> it's true. You know, I used to be able to carry on conversations. And now, when we had little kids, I, I spoke some kind of perverse form of iambic pentameter. <laughs> Take the one cell zygote out of there. 
put it underneath a microscope, look at it, would you say, oh, whoa, there's God down there. Interestingly enough, though, the early church, almost without exception, believed that indeed this was the very body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, St. Ignatius, who was a disciple of the Apostle John for many, 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 many years, said this, I paraphrase, have nothing to do with the heretics, for they do not confess that the bread and wine become the very body and blood of our Lord and Savior. Irenaeus says, if Christ were other than from God, how could he take ordinary bread? Put it into himself. I used to tease my Protestant friends, Carol, I'll make a deal. You find me one early church father in the first thousand years that said this is nothing but a memorial meal. That's all it is. There's never meant to be anything else. And I could consider looking back at the Protestant church. But if I find you 25 early writers who said, this is our Lord himself, would you convert? In your papers on that. Because you know as well as I do often, very, very often, conversion is not a matter of intellect, it's a matter of will. It's a matter of submission. I could go on longer. I'll leave you with this thought, though. Well, I'll share it with you quickly. You're trying to start a new religion. You've got the Roman Empire arrayed against you. The Roman Empire doesn't worry about your rights. You're trying to start a new religion, and you're, you're trying to get converts. So I go up to this gentleman and I say, we travel with him, and you can't believe the stuff this guy can do. He rose from the dead. 
Now, he's a logical fella. He's looking at me, and he's looking at the guys that are with me, and he's thinking, well, they don't seem crazy. I mean, I know it's a wild story, but they, they certainly seem very level nights. He knows signs that these guys are not wrapped. So he, married to this woman, asks another question. He says, well, is there anything else about this, the way that, that, that I would have to do if I join you? Well, yes. Um, we have a moral system. And this moral system is a system he gave us. And it, it, it is for the world beyond, but it also works very well in this world. And I tell him what the moral system is. He says, well, it's not bad. Okay, okay. Anything else? Yes, yes. If anything happens to you, we're going to take care of her. We're going to take care of her, and we're going to take care of all your young children. We will not allow her to be abandoned on the streets. She's with us. We'll take care of her. Now it's appealing to her. It's the end of the first hour of interview. He asks one final question. Is there anything else? Yes. Um, on the first day of the week, we get together, and uh, and our duly appointed men um, say certain prayers and uh, over the bread and wine, and then and then it becomes him. And then we eat it. <laughs> Why would the early church make up something so stupid? You wouldn't make this up. Why? Because people can see it's bread. Alright? You're not going to try to convince somebody that it's this this resurrected person. Why? That makes no sense. Unless that's exactly what you intended. Final point. In 1968, Pope Paul VI basically was under enormous pressure from other Christian denominations and the world. Tell the Catholics to change their teaching on birth control. Change it. All the Protestant denominations are already changing. Which, by the way, is another piece of irrationality. Because up until 1930, every single Christian denomination, Protestant, Catholic, Eastern, said contraception was a great moral evil. In the 1930s, the cracks in the wall started, and by the time 68 was around, pretty much everybody but the Catholic Church and some isolated Protestant groups and maybe certain Eastern churches said, no, no. Pope was under enormous pressure. He put together a commission. I think there were 23 people on the commission, clerics, medical people, ethicists, scripture scholars. Study this. The commission came back to the Pope. I think the vote was 19 to 4. Holy Father, change it. Change it. We're going to have too many babies. California's going to fall into the ocean. <laughs> What's the point? Holy Father did what the Christ shepherds were supposed to do. He went and prayed for guidance from the Holy Spirit. The Catholic Church makes a wild claim that really irks non-Catholics. The Catholic Church says that Jesus Christ himself will not allow his church to teach error in matters of faith and morals. Because if he did, you wouldn't know what to believe. How do you know if the church is teaching you the right thing or not? It's been around for 2,000 years. It got pretty screwed up by now. 
He came back and he said, no, we do not have the authority to change this. Women will be demeaned, abortion will skyrocket, the family will fragment, it would be enormous in its ramifications, and everybody around, especially the intellectual types, went nuts. This is why you don't have celibate old men running a church. They have no idea what it's like for a woman. They did not know this then, they know it now. The pill can be an abortifacing. They thought the mechanism of the pill was that it prevented an egg from dropping, and it does do that. But in an unknown number of cases, an egg drops, even if you're on the pill. If the sperm unites with the egg, you have a one-day-old baby. That one-day-old baby becomes two, three, four, five days old, travels down the fallopian tubes, attempts to implant into the uterus, and is washed out. It is aborted. Why? Because the uterine wall is hostile. It's not ready for implantation. So it just basically gets rid of this five-day-old baby. Do you see what the church would have been saying if our Lord would have allowed her to do what all the pressure said? The Catholic Church has taught for 2,000 years that life begins at conception. We'll leave off the insulting factor part. Life begins at conception. It is okay. You can take a chemical that in some unknown number of cases will kill that life. You have the Catholic Church giving permission for murder. The big, wise, fancy people didn't know that at the time. God did. For me, when I learned of that, that was my final straw. I came back to the church. There really is only one reason to be Catholic. Not because you love Father's homilies. Not because they got great youth groups. Not because the cutest girl in the world sits in that third pew just for the back. <laughs> because it's true. If it's not true, get out of it. Go do what you want. You know, it's just a big cosmic therapy anyway. But if it is true, it is everything. I'm to close with a few thoughts. Um, as I said, I do have five boys and um, five estrogen Americans. <laughs> There are no differences between little boys and little girls. They are just socialized into different roles. Some of the very powerful gender norming forces. You give a little girl a front end over, she'll carry around for four years, grow up to become a special ops tank commando. You give a little boy a baby doll, he'll carry around for four years, grow up to become a nurturing preschool teacher. 50% of little boys will rip the head off that baby doll and turn it into a machine gun. God says it, human history says it, the research says it. For example, little girls, women, are more verbal than little boys. Men, they talk earlier, they talk better, they talk longer. <laughs> That's why if a mom drifts into a discipline trap, it's usually something along these lines. 
Stop, stop, nee, nee, dat is niet negotiëren. Stop, stop, nee, nee. <laughs> If a dad drifts into a discipline trap, it's usually something along these lines. Tolerate, tolerate. Oblivious, oblivious. Ignore, ignore. Kill! <laughs> Herself if she doesn't know you're there. <laughs> Jessica, why don't you come over about a new mission? Bring the baby out of bed. Oh, I love it. I memorized the 30,000 baby windows. You took me two hours. We'll get out of the park. The leaders go cinnamon this time of year. You come along the arm with a piece of the center and that Those are colors of scoring. I need to do my thing. You ever listen to a little boy play by himself? He doesn't know you're there. I don't 
don't think she told anybody that. <laughs> Joshua says he's got one called teacher. I'll ask her if that's her. <laughs> First day of kindergarten, I asked my daughter, Hannah, how was school today, baby? What? Okay, Daddy. My teacher's name is Mrs. Bartley. Mrs. Bartley has three children, Jessica, Jason, and Matthew. We can tell them activities. The pumpkin bean cutting activity started at 8.07. Actually, it was my best friend until late 30. She got mad at me. I don't even know what I did. <laughs> Jessica told Tiffany I could be her forever friend until tomorrow at 9 o'clock.
from everything we can tell, a perfectly normal young man. It was a shadowy ultra town. The technology was totally incorrect. So, I'd like to give those examples. I don't need to give it to you. You know this. But maybe it brings the point home a little bit. Because people will say, well, don't, don't adopted kids like kind of, you know, like, don't they have this big baby psychological hole? Kind of, they want to know who they are? No. No, most of them do not. Most of them are very content with the family that God has given them. But you know what my kids do know? They're very aware of this. How fortunate they are to be alive. They were very high risk. They were the standard kids that would have been aborted, would have been killed. And they know, and we constantly tell them of the love of their birth mother, for doing what she did in a world that basically said, don't do this. What are you doing? A lot of kids are alive because of that. You know why we have 10? Because we don't want 11. <laughs> couple, couple minutes for questions? Okay. All right. I, uh, I'm not real good at uh, short answer essays, you know, the blue book kind of things. <laughs> so uh, why don't you do some true or false? I'm, I'm better, though. I got like a 50-50 chance. <laughs> couple of questions, and I'll let you guys go. By the way, I'm going to give this to the college. This is the YB Catholic Convergence story. I did it a few years back to a men's conference. And I know you have this, but I don't know about whether the sound comes through well enough for you and everything, but this is professionally done, so And you can make as many copies of that as you want. You know, if the kids want me to look at it, give out the copy, keep the original. Couple questions. Sir. Well, it's an intelligent question. I wanted to add some substance tonight. Several levels. Shrinks want to be like doctors. So shrinks come up with diagnoses. And what tends to happen is we broaden our diagnoses. And some of the squishier diagnoses are what they call personality disorders. Narcissistic personality disorder is a classic example of that. It essentially means you have an enormously self-absorbed, self-centered, I am the beginning and the end of the universe kind of individual. It's an ugly person to deal with. Now, there has been speculation that certain high-profile politicians uh, struggle with this particular, uh, <laughs> or shall we say, personality proclivity. <laughs> I've listened to certain politicians speak, and um, yes, I am convinced they may not be narcissistic in the, in the disordered sense of the word, but they are enormously self-absorbed, peevish, and self-centered. But I think that is part and parcel of politics. You almost have to have something driving you to navigate this kind of ugliness. I have always wanted to go to confession like the politicians. Bless me, Father, mistakes were made. <laughs> and I would like to apologize 
if God misunderstood the context of my motives and misinterpreted the outcome of my behavior. <laughs> so, to the degree he was mistaken in his interpretation, you hear him like that? <laughs> you give him absolution? Uh, Congressman, I want you to say a better explanation than that. <laughs> yeah, you're right. There's always that speculation. And, and I will tell you this about the shrinks. We were talking about this at the table. Psychology has a veneer of Christian virtue. Psychology talks about tolerance, acceptance, understanding, at some level maybe sort of forgiveness. But at its very core, modern secular psychology is antithetical to Christianity. It is hostile. As I was telling Father, psychologists have become the new secular priests. They have really shaped the way the culture thinks. Yes, ma'am. Yes. And then you have some priest that will quote something like that and say, oh, you don't need that. How do you differentiate that in counseling? First of all, if you're going to look for a Catholic counselor, you look for someone who is Catholic first and a counselor second. All too often, they are counselors first and Catholic second. That's the first thing. The second thing, people will say to me, are you a Catholic clinician? I will say, no, I'm not. I will deal with the people where they are. If someone comes to me and says, my marriage is falling apart, I am a Catholic, I, have, I want to persevere. Everybody in the world after my husband has had his third affair is telling me to get out of here. I have nobody left supporting me anymore. My mother has said, I don't want to hear another word from you. If you stay in this relationship, you're stupid. And she said, my mother's a family community. I will practice my psychology in the context of a very clear Catholic perspective for those folks. I can do that. On the other hand, I have had homosexuals come in, and they are struggling with different aspects in their lives. Well, I, they don't want to hear Catholic perspective. They don't want me to say to them, you understand that in God's law, homosexuality is pretty disordered, don't you? That's not what they're there for. So what I will do is I will do everything in my power to guide them through natural reason towards God's truth without labeling it God's truth. All right? Your question, how do you know if you're being told Catholic light or nonsense? you got to educate yourself. I had a lady walk in my office just last week. She went to who she thought was a good Catholic Counselor, and she was told, hey, you got two kids, don't worry about it, that's enough. It's a conscious decision. Contraception. And she looked at her and said, is that, is that what the church teaches? And she was told, this, this woman had high Catholic credentials. She was told, well, it's a matter of conscience. You know, you have to, your conscience is just super ordinary here, and, and that's kind of what is involved. And she came to me. I said, I will tell you what the church teaches. So you're right. A little bit, I get calls from people all the time saying, I tried the quote-unquote Catholic counselor route, and I couldn't believe what I was told. There was something within them that says, this doesn't smell right. I don't know quite why it's wrong, but it just doesn't smell good. 
One more. Or one more. One more. Sir. Just, uh, can you give a reason for becoming uh, a psychologist rather than a psychiatrist or vice versa? Yeah, reason for becoming a shrink rather than a, a real shrink. <laughs> hey, you know, I've been shrinking for over 30 years. I used to be like 6'9". <laughs> It was accidental. Um, I was educated my first year at Case Tech as an engineer. And then I thought, well, I can't do this. Maybe I'll go to law school. So I did what most good college students do. I changed my major nine times. <laughs> and in my senior year, I got a master's in psychology through a special program. And I thought, well, this, now this is kind of neat stuff. I was 21 years old. I'm like, this is pretty cool. Maybe I'll just try to go get a PhD. And I did. And I didn't really know. I had no conceptualization of what I was heading into. Psychology is a good thing. It has, it has given me a wonderful life. It has made me be able to do this kind of stuff. But I will tell you, you got to be careful. Because humans are not made to take wave after wave after wave of human misery and tragedy and hurt and pain like this. There's got to be ways to deal with it. Psychologists have, have a, and I, how do I say this gently? And if you, if you put me on paper, I'll die. Psychologists have a much broader understanding of human conduct. Psychologists are basically trained to understand the dynamics of human behavior and motivations and thinking and emotions and history, etc. Psychiatrists have kind of been kind of pushed into this niche of pretty much prescribing medication. There are some psychiatrists who attempt to get into some type of therapy, but for the most part, they are shunted out of that because so many people are coming through for medication that their appointments are 15 minutes long. So if you really want to get into someone who has a lot of experience in understanding human dynamics, I would advise you to go to a psychologist. Okay. Well, I see I gotta close with a final story. God dies, goes to heaven. St. Peter says, uh, what's your name? Jim Smith. Now we look you up here, Jim. Huh. You're not here. We don't, we don't have a record of you. And I said, well, I'm the deputy. St. Peter says, I, you know, I, don't know what, I don't know what the story is either here. I'll be right back. I'll talk to Paul. Comes back, he says, I'll tell you what, I, I was told uh, we don't really need a formal record. Uh, we, just, we just need to know a little bit about your life. Uh, can you think of anything heroic you did or something morally heroic? Guy says, uh, oh boy. Yeah, yeah. I remember one time I was behind this gang, this motorcycle gang. Boy, they were they were mean. So I was one of them. And this woman was at this red light and she didn't go when it was green and it made them mad. You know, they got out and pounded on her car and he said, I couldn't take that. I went to my car. I pulled over right down there. I pulled over. I got out my tire on. I went to my car, I went up to the biggest, meanest, ugliest dude, and I smacked him out of them. And I looked at all, they were, they were around me in a circle, and I looked at them and I said, you mess with her? You mess with me. And she got in the car, she drove away. I, you know, I probably saved her for, for at least something terrible. Thank you, said, that's amazing. Our records are better than this. I can't, I can't believe we missed something like that. When did this happen? I says, oh, about a minute ago.
most come from the fourth striking school of psychology. <laughs> For those of you who would like, there will be a there will be a reception. There will be a reception right here.